right, we are going to go ahead and get started here. Um, I know some people might have been turned away by the sign on the back door saying it was full. Um, some of you may not have heard, but I was saying earlier, if you have a question you'd like to turn in, I want to, I want to hear your questions. I realize sometimes when you've been through difficult situations, it's hard to see how general principles apply to your specific situation. So it's fine if you want to write a specific question and say this is something that I'm wondering about or someone I know is dealing with or how do I help a person who, anything like that. There are a bunch of pieces of paper on that table where the projector is. You're welcome to take one, write out your question, bring it up here. I have some questions that people have asked me or that I know are very common questions. And um, I'm going to start out with giving you a brief overview of what we've been talking about up to this point in the seminar. Some of you I know were here for part of the sessions yesterday, only made it to one or two. So I'm going to summarize what I talked about yesterday, and that may help jog your mind on something you go, that's what I wanted to know about. So please feel free to turn in a question on your own piece of paper, or one from over there, borrow a pen from somebody. I want to know what it is that you want, and I can help, hopefully, show you how the Bible applies to your specific situation. I don't have the answers here. I want to make that really plain. But God has the answers. He understands your situation, and I guarantee the answers are in his word. So we can't always eliminate all the pain from a situation, but God will help us to understand what our sinful responses are and deliver us from those so that no matter what happens, the things that happen to us can draw us closer to Christ. Let's start with a word of prayer. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, we just... Plead for your Holy Spirit to be with us. I know that you have called each one of us out of darkness into your marvelous light, and you want us to walk in the light. You've told us the path of the justice is a shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. And Lord, we want our lives to shine more and more as we grow closer and closer to you. We're changed more and more into your image. We're here today because we want to know how your word applies to that process of transformation. And I pray that you will guide, that you will speak through my voice, that you will give me the wisdom that I need to reach out to every soul here, because all of us, Lord, long to be changed to be like you. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, how many of you were here for the first session yesterday? Let me see your hands. All right, how many were here for the second one? And the third one? All right, and the fourth one? All right, thank you so much. Um, I will give you a quick summary then that probably you'll be able to handle that and it'll help jog your memory maybe on the things that weren't clear in what I shared yesterday. Um, to start out with, the first presentation that uh, I did yesterday was about the difference between worldly self-esteem and godly self-worth. Now sometimes when somebody comes up to you and says the problem is you need to have better self-esteem, they may not understand that that's the word that I've used for something that's bad. You know, maybe they mean that you need to base your understanding of your worth on the love of God for you. But that's the godly method of building your understanding of your worth. God wants you to know you are infinitely loved, infinitely lovable, infinitely valuable and worthwhile. These are the things that matter. Every human being hungers for security and significance, to be loved and to be worth something. This is, this is our universal need because God has created us in his image, and these are his longings. He wants to love and to be loved in return, and he wants to transform. He wants to bring other people 
other created beings. He wants to bring us created beings up into his image. And we as human beings have that longing too. We want to make a difference in the world. We want to make the world a better place. And if we know we're not doing it, we're inherently dissatisfied with our lives and we dislike ourselves because we realize I'm not doing what I was created to do on some level of consciousness. So God wants us to understand our worth is not based on anything we do or on anything we don't do. The fact that you do everything right will not make God love you anymore. Unlike your parents, who may or may not have reflected that to you, God is not influenced by, she does everything I like, now I love her, now I want to have him in my life because he doesn't hurt me anymore. God loves us with his everlasting love based on two things. We were created in the image of God and we were redeemed by the blood of Christ. These are the two things that are the measures of your worth. And when you struggle with feeling that you are unloved or insignificant, that you can't be secure, that you can't be worthwhile, these are the things you can go back to, the rock-solid foundation that the Bible has given to you, showing that you are loved, you are worthwhile. God created you in his image. That's not something that you can wrap your mind around in a quick 10-minute reading of Genesis chapter 2. That's something that takes meditation. If you want a quick fix microwave, now I'm happy, happy, joy, joy, you may find something like that. When you go, there are lots of churches that will help you just during their song service to suddenly go from feeling unloved and unlovable to feeling wonderful. Boy, I feel great. I feel so close to God. But you haven't dealt with the sin issues that were standing between you and God. The person next to you comes to that same song service. They're sleeping with their boyfriend. They're having a violent relationship with somebody at work. They, they, they hate this person. This other person hates them. They come there feeling I don't feel in touch with God. And within 10 or 15 minutes, wow, they may feel in touch with God. That doesn't mean they're in touch with God. That means they feel better. And the feelings are going to go up and down with the tide. So when you feel close to God, it doesn't mean you're close to God. And when you feel far from God, it doesn't mean he's far from you. Don't depend on your feelings. The word of God says, depend on what I say. I love you. You are worthwhile. You do matter. Don't listen to the lies of the devil. You can't fix that in a quick feel-good session. The Bible is not designed for feel-good sessions. It's designed for deep heart introspection, saying, I need to compare what's going on in my life to the Word of God. And when I compare that, I see I am woefully inadequate to be what God wants me to be. But that's okay, because that's the story of redemption. He says, it's all right. You fell. You're not reflecting my image anymore, but I can still fix it. I will now restore you into my image. The purpose of life on this earth is for us to image God. He created Adam and Eve in Eden for the purpose of growing infinitely through all eternity more and more into his image of love. God is love. It's who he is. He can't stop loving you because love is who he is. And so he will love you whether you do what he wants or not. And he will seek to transform you because that's what he does. He is redemptive. So it doesn't matter how bad you are, how much you've messed up, how messed up your childhood is, and it wasn't even your fault. God can still take those things and turn them into tools for good. The fact that Adam and Eve fell is not just going to be something that God says, well, we'll cover it over somehow and we can still make the universe a happy place. Actually, because of the fall into sin, the universe will see the love of God and his character revealed in a way they never could have before. So not just in spite of sin, but actually because of sin, God's love will be revealed to the universe 
in a deeper way. That's the way our God is. I can't understand it. Our minds can't wrap around this. But whatever your mistakes are, whatever other people's mistakes were, it doesn't matter that it wasn't God's will that those things happened. He can still use those things for his glory when you turn your life over to him. So that's a lot of, that's kind of a summary of what we talked about yesterday. God is love. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. And when you're struggling in your self-image, you need to build your self-worth on the love of God. Not on what you look like, not on what other people think of you, not on if you're popular, you have nice clothes, you have the right car, you're really good at basketball. These things are completely insignificant. All the factors under the sun, as Solomon said, are insignificant measures of worth. What matters is what God thinks of you. The creator of the entire universe is out there ruling it all, and on this little speck of dirt of this earth, he says, let me change you into my image. And that's the big picture. So when you start feeling, my life is a wreck, you don't know the things that are going on, I'm just in such turmoil, get a bigger picture. Start thinking outside of this little speck of dust. Think about, he is the creator. He is so big. You know, some of the best prayer times I've ever had have been times that I just went out and walked around under the stars and looked up and said, wow, you're a big God. And all of a sudden I realized how little and insignificant I am. And then, of course, I'm like, wow, how could someone so big, ruling a whole universe, love someone as little as insignificant as me? Especially someone who's in rebellion against him, someone who's defiant of him, who says, yeah, yeah, I know you've got lots of power, but I can take care of myself and I don't actually need you. In my foolishness, God still sees in me infinite worth. The Bible tells us that our hearts are two things. They're thirsty and they're foolish. So we're thirsty, like the picture I gave you yesterday of being out in the desert, you're parched. You don't know how to satisfy that thirst. You know there's an oasis. There is a wellspring of life. That water of life is there, but it's so far away, and I'm right here, and I can't get there. So I'm going to dig a little broken cistern right here. Get some water. It'll at least satisfy me for a little while, right? Give me the strength I need to make it to the oasis, make it to that wellspring of living water. But the more we drink from those broken cisterns, the more we feel like those are the answers, not God. And then when the broken cisterns dry up, we think the problem is it was just the wrong cistern. I just need a boyfriend who doesn't treat me that way. I just need a girl who really understands. I just need somebody who would be a mom to me like no one else has ever been to me. And so we go to these people looking for things that only God can give. Or we go to things. If I can just become powerful enough, if I can get influential enough, then then I'll be successful. Then this dull ache will go away. We're thirsty. There's nothing evil about the fact that your heart is thirsty. Every heart of every soul that you meet is thirsty too. And God made you that way. It's a great thing because he created you for him to complete you. He wants you to be thirsty so that you'll come to him to drink. But our hearts are foolish. That's the other thing the Bible tells us. And so we, with our foolish hearts, say, I don't actually need him. I think I can fix it myself. I've got the answer within me. I can fix it, and our culture has maximized that. We love the thought that we can take care of ourselves and we don't need anybody or anything to take care of us. So even though we know intellectually, no, I can't handle everything, and it comes crashing down on us regularly, but still, we, we get up and start saying, I think I can put the pieces of this puzzle together by myself. I can do it, the sin of self-reliance. And that sin, which is really just another word for pride, 
pride lies at the root of so many other sins, right? Isn't pride the root of why Lucifer rebelled? And pride in all its various manifestations happens in our lives and eats away at us until we think that we're just thirsty because we haven't found the right thing, the right person, the right whatever it is that we can find if we just look hard enough. We can do it if we just work hard enough. We'll get the grade, we'll get the job, then we'll finally be successful. And of course, then we'll spend time with God and build a relationship with him and everything will be fine. Now, what is it that keeps us at a distance from the wellspring of living water? What is it that makes me perceive that God is so far away? Because he's not, right? We know God is always right there beside us. He loves us with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness has he drawn us, right? The Bible says he drew me with the cords of, of love. He draws us with the cords of love. So his love never stops. But we don't feel loved. What is that Ziploc bag that goes around the sponge of our hearts so that when we're immersed in that sink full of water, we come up dry and thirsty still? What is that bag? Sin. And those sins can take all kinds of forms. The most common root of, of all sins, there are two things, the broken cisterns and forsaking the fountain of living water. Why do we forsake the fountain of living water? Because we think he's far away. And even though the Bible says he's not, we feel it. And we believe our feelings instead of the word of God. God says, but I feel. And which one has more weight in our culture? You know, God says homosexual behavior is wrong, but I feel. How can love be so wrong? And so we put I feel above God says. Why do we put I feel above God says? And why do we feel so strongly that God's not there? Partly because our culture is an instant culture, and you can't microwave relationships. You can have sex in 20 minutes, but you can't have love in 20 minutes. Love is something that has to be built as you learn who this person is, as you spend time with them. Because we are thirsty, we tend to spend time with other people. And if you're having a difficult time in your relationship with God, sometimes it's good to just apply the same, the same rules that you know work in human relationships to a relationship with God. Do you meet somebody at GYC, you sit down at the table and you introduce yourself and 20 minutes later they're your best friend? No, you didn't even know them. You can't have that. You've got to spend time with someone. They need to discover you. You need to discover them. As you learn to know one another, then you can learn to love one another. So a relationship with God, just like our relationships with people, take time. With people, we often have hormones driving us. And then we can achieve quick, superficial intimacy. I feel so close to you because we look deep into each other's eyes and feel like we're going to melt. Wonderful. But you don't get that with God. Because God does not draw us by just feelings. He wants to draw us by knowing. He wants to know you. You're not going to get a microwave relationship with God because day by day he wants to spend time with you. You know, with my husband, I love him very much, and he loves me very much. But day by day we have to spend time with one another. Relationships are built on quality time and communication. You can sit by the same person in class all day, every day, and not build a relationship with them if you don't communicate with them, if you don't have quality time with them. You're there, you're having time with them, but it's not quality time with them. So God wants to build a relationship with you based on quality time and deep communication. You can spend an afternoon with somebody sometimes, and I've spent an afternoon with someone sometimes, and come out of it going, wow, we communicated on such a deep level. I feel that I know this person very well, and they know me very well. 
and you know, in an afternoon, sometimes several hours of deep communication, you can make some real progress in getting to know a person. So I'm not saying if you want to get to know God, just prepare. It's going to take you months before you get close to him. Just plan on deep quality, open communication and quality time with him. And you'll be amazed at what he can do. When you sit down and you listen to his voice and say, God, what do you want to say to me? What's going on in this situation in my life? Why is this person hurting me? Why am I so upset about this thing that they said? Then listen to him. He'll talk. Sometimes he'll talk to you through his word. He may send you to a verse. He may send you to a person. He may just speak to you and say, I am love. I love you. I know it doesn't make sense right now, but we're going to work through this. Give it time. Keep loving them. Keep on being who I've called you to be. Image God in your relationships with other people. Seek to be like him. Do what he would do in this situation. That sometimes means loving the person by pulling away and letting them make their own choices. Sometimes it means loving them by letting them know, I will still love you no matter how you treat me. Sometimes it means telling them, I know you're going to be very upset with me if I share this with you, but I see something going on in your life that I dare not stand back and watch. Love takes a lot of different forms, and God will give you wisdom. Sometimes you may make mistakes, and that's okay. He doesn't, he doesn't look at you and go, oh, you've done it again. I can't stand you. You know, when I used to make a mistake in something, I would just lash myself emotionally for days. You're such an idiot. He could never love you now. She could never love you now. You never do anything right. Were those true? Were they lies? They're lies of the devil. When the devil tells you lies, and it's often the best time for you to communicate with God and go deeper in your relationship with him is when you hit a tough spot, when you hit rock bottom. That's the time you can say, God, what is it I'm craving right now? What is it I want to flee to instead of you? And then he'll come to you. Then he'll talk to you. Then he'll listen to you, and he'll say, here's what's going on in your life. He'll show you the idols. You take a piece of paper and say, Lord, show me the idols, and it'll come clear. And you can go, wow, why was I drawn to that? I didn't realize. God has this wonderful process in store for you of growing. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. He wants you to grow and bear fruit. But it's not something that's going to happen instantaneously just because you did what he wanted and so he'll finally accept you. There may be instantaneous moments where you just feel it's kind of like you have a dam in the river of your heart holding you back from being able to experience the love of God. And then as you pull away at those logs, those things that are holding you back from being able to understand God's love, you chip away maybe by evaluating what is it that is wrong in my relationship with my parents or in my relationship with other significant people in my life that misrepresents the character of God to me. And then as you start chipping away at those things, pulling out this thing, pulling out that thing, all of a sudden the dam may burst and all of a sudden, wow, now I understand God's love in a whole new way. This is the beauty of the gospel. God keeps giving us breakthroughs and saying, but I have so much more, so much more that I'm going to do for you. Wait and see. Behold the good and beautiful things that God can do for a person who's fully surrendered to him. Now, when it comes to parents imaging God for you, all of us have been raised by faulty parents or faulty caregivers. Whoever it is that raised you, they were not perfect. 
So in some way, every parent misrepresents the image of God. Some parents misrepresent the image of God profoundly to their children. Maybe they divorce and they therefore give their children this, <coughs> excuse me, this powerful message. If you don't do what I want, if you don't make me happy, I will abandon my relationship with you. And then a child grows up with this constant fear, even if they're not conscious of it, of if I don't do everything right, my parents aren't going to love me. They're going to abandon me. And that, of course, is going to flow over into our relationship with God. Very often I find people struggle with denial, which is just simply lying to yourself. Lying is a sin and we all know that, right? But we lie to ourselves and we don't think of it as a big deal. One of the most healing things that happened for me was when I actually went to a counselor. Now, see, I didn't go to counseling. When I was battling with depression all those years of my adolescence, I never went to a counselor. I was finally, I think I was 22, 21 or 22, maybe 23, goodness. It was a long time into my process when I finally said, okay, God, maybe you do want me to go to a counselor, but I have zero interest in going and talking to somebody about what's going on in my heart. I cannot do it. I will not do it. And so I told him, if you want me to go to a counselor, God, you're going to have to make the appointment for me, and you're going to have to get me there without me doing anything about it. So there. <laughs> Love that process of surrender to God. <laughs> and a couple of days later, my roommate said to me, you know, Nicole, I know some people who've really been blessed by talking to this counselor. Would you be willing to go if I made an appointment for you and I drove you there? And I thought, why? Why me? <laughs> and so I went. And this counselor, he listened to me as I talked about different things that had happened in my childhood, trying to get around to talking about things. And when I finally started actually letting down my guard and the tears began to come and I started talking about what had really happened to me, he just had this look of compassion on his face. And he said, you have been hurt so much. And it was just amazing to me. Wow. I finally had permission to feel. Because all of those years I'd been saying to myself, you're just making a big deal about nothing. Why do you keep on thinking about yourself? Why do you keep on getting caught up in this stuff? Forget about it. God loves you. Move on. Don't think about it anymore. Sing a joyful song to the Lord, right? I wasn't willing to grieve. I wasn't willing to admit that I was hurting. And therefore, God couldn't heal me. But once I could finally accept the fact, this really hurt, and it's okay to hurt, and God is already there in my hurt, ready to heal me and bring me out of this. You know, we've talked about how the physical world mirrors the spiritual world and teaches us. If you want physical healing and you know there's something wrong, sometimes there are chronic diseases that just hurt, and the pain stays there, maybe arthritis or something like that. The pain is always there. It's always hurting. It's not accomplishing anything. It's not a signal to you that you now need to change your lifestyle and then you will do fine. I'm not saying that lifestyle changes can't make a difference in some of those things, but there are things that are just chronic pain. But emotional pain is, when it comes from a sin situation, is more like an infection. There's something that needs to be taken care of. And sin, when it's inside of you, it festers. It grows, it eats at you, and it becomes worse and worse and worse. Everything is either growing or dying. And when an infection of sin is eating at you, you're dying slowly, and you feel it, and you know it. That pain is a pain message to you saying, let's take care of this. Let's get it out. Let's get that infection out. 
But often what happens in the process of healing, it's as if there are three concentric circles, one in the middle, then another circle that's bigger that's around that circle, and the third circle is on the outside. We who are in emotional pain because of sin situations, sinful responses in our lives, are in the middle circle. That middle circle is called bad. And if you've been there, you recognize it. Bad feels bad. Sometimes it feels worse, sometimes it feels better, but it feels bad. And after a while, we all get tired of living in bad. And we say, you know what, I think I want to get out of bad. Let me see if I can get out of bad. And so we take a step out into the second circle. You know what that circle is called? It's called worse. <laughs> and when we stick our toes out into worse, it doesn't take long before we go, ow, 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 I like bad better. And we go back into bad until it gets so bad that we can't keep on there anymore. And then we say, okay, let me try another route. Maybe I can go out again and see if I can find it. And we try a different path, but it's still, it's still worse. And we go back to bad. And many people spend their entire lives going from bad to worse and back to bad. They, they find, you know, I, need, I can't go on this way anymore. And bad keeps getting worse and worse and worse because God is calling you to get out. He's saying, come away, let me heal you. Let me take it away. But we step out into bad and we say, I can't stand this. And we step out into worse and we go back to bad. God wants us to go through worse, through that dark valley, the valley of the shadow of death, because that's the experience by which we experience his love in a way we never could have before. We start realizing, wow, my perception of you was a lie. That's not really who you are. That's not really how you are. And as we go through that and we learn the hard way, as we go from bad into worse, eventually we make it to the third circle outside, and that's called better. Until we get to heaven, we'll never get to the point where it's best. Everything is perfect. Everything is wonderful. Life is no longer painful. This side of glory, we go from bad into worse into better. And then sometimes God wants to bring us deeper in a relationship with him, so he has to put us into a little more worse. There may be lots of cycles of that bad to worse to better to worse to better to worse to better, but the path of the just is as the shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. God is going to be with you in that journey. Now, what are the, some of the steps that you can take in going from bad to worse to better? We've talked about some of those. Yesterday afternoon, we especially focused on that. Um, if any of you have questions, I still don't have any questions up here. You're welcome to write them out if this is jogging your memory on anything that you were feeling was unclear. But I know for a majority of people, it may just be this process that's the main thing that's difficult to get. You wrap your mind around, okay, I know God wants me to get better. He doesn't want me to stay where I am. And I know you kind of outline things, but this is not a ladder. How do I get from where I am to where I want to be again? Is that where you're feeling, you know, you need the, the specifics on that? Okay, well, one of the first steps you can take. Now, this is a general situation here. I can't, I can't tell you this is what you need. Maybe your issues come from parenting. Maybe your issues come from something else altogether. You may have been abused by an elder at church. I don't know what it is that's going on in your life. But as you identify the painful situations that you're unable to forgive, you can start experiencing God's grace in those particular situations. How do you do that? Sometimes journaling is a great thing to do to help you to focus, especially for those of us who have been through a difficult time in our lives. We may have developed sort of an ADHD, a way of working with things. Uh-oh, this hurts, let me bounce to something else. So we have a hard time focusing, even on prayer, even on spending time with God. Our minds go everywhere else, we're going, yeah, yeah, God, I know you love me, I know, please help me to, to trust you, and please be with my family, and please be with my friends. 
but we don't know how to connect deeply with him and we get unfocused very quickly. So prayer journaling can be very helpful. Taking a journal and writing down, these are the things that I'm feeling. This is how I feel God is. What is your image of God? I talked yesterday about how you can, you can look up the family evaluation. Just Google the family evaluation and you should be able to find that. It's from Purdue University, I think, or something like that. xapurdue.com. But as you look up the family evaluation, you can go through those 11 pages or so of what's going on in my relationship with my parents. That can be a crucial tool for you in evaluating what is it that holds me back from experiencing God's love. Because I feel sometimes like God is not a God of love. He's a God who hurts me. Or God is a God who says, if you'll just do everything right, I'll love you. These are the, the false perceptions that we sometimes get of God because God created us to be in community in a family. That's his will. That's his plan. He wants us to be in community and families that illustrate how relationships are supposed to be. And then those families gather together in communities called churches. And those churches are able to support in a larger way. This is the way God wants it to be, but unfortunately, families and churches are built up of people, and people are hurting. People are struggling, and sometimes people make mistakes in their way of imaging God for one another. So when you want to build your relationship with God, you're largely going to build your image of God on the relationships closest to you. If your older sister constantly persecuted you, told you how stupid you were, how ugly you were, how you never did anything right, your image of God may be heavily impacted on that. God can't love somebody like me. I'm stupid and I'm ugly and I don't do anything right. God needs to chip through that. This is the Ziploc bag that holds your sponge dry in the midst of God's love for you. When your image of God, your concept of God is warped because you see God as something that the Bible says he's not, but God says and you feel are two different things. How do you make God says outweigh I feel? First, you meditate on God says instead of meditating on I feel. Evaluate I feel. What is it that I feel about God? You've got to look at that. What is it that I really believe about God? Do I really believe in his love for me? And if not, why not? As you do that, what is sharper than any two-edged sword? The word of God. The word of God can pierce through that Ziploc bag, and you'll be amazed at the breakthroughs that can happen in your relationship with God just in an hour or two of prayer, of contemplation. It isn't all going to happen instantly, but I can see in many people's lives is one hour of prayer that's the turning point for them. Wow, God is who I always longed for as a father. God is who I always longed for as a mother, and things turn around for them. Suddenly, they have hope. They believe maybe he could love me like that. Maybe he could give his life for someone like me. They knew it, but they didn't believe it. So when that image of God that you have is warped, your sponge is in this Ziploc bag and nothing can seem to quench your thirst. Figure out what the bag is first. What is it that stands in the way of God quenching the thirst in your heart? What is the thirst in your heart? What did you long for with your parents? Did you always long for a dad who would just go for a walk with you, laugh with you, play basketball with you? A dad who just wanted to spend time with you, wanted to know what was in your heart? Did you long for a mother who would comfort you, who would take your head and put it on her shoulder and just let you cry, who would listen to you? What did you long for in your relationships with your parents? What do you long for from a boyfriend or a girlfriend? 
What is it you're craving? How does God want to be that for you? Figure out what the thirst is in your life. Figure out what it is that's making you feel and believe that God can't satisfy that thirst, that you need to go to something else. You see, the best way to deal with the broken cisterns in your life is to drink from the fountain of living water. When you quench that thirst, you no longer are desperate for somebody to help me, somebody please love me. I'm not saying that you shouldn't break up if you're in a bad relationship, that you just need to go spend time with God and it'll all work itself out. You need to do both. Break the broken cisterns. Get rid of them. Walk away from them. But don't just do that because the thirst will be too great. My husband's gonna talk next session about how to deal with addictions, how to overcome those things. The first thing you have to do though is get a drink from the fountain of living water. It'll give you the courage and hope you need to, to walk away from the things that you know that you shouldn't be going to instead of Christ. So spending time in the word of God, not just reading, don't just read for an hour, okay, I gotta read for an hour, I'm gonna get in my hour of time with God. And some of the best meaning people say, I'm gonna spend an hour with God every day, and that's a great idea, a great thing to do. But don't feel like if I've spent my hour of time with God today, check, done it. I don't need to spend any more time with him. This is a relationship. It's not a contract. He doesn't say, if you do what I told you to do, if you'll spend an hour with me every day, then I'll be with you all day long. If you don't, tough luck. This is not God. God longs for relationship with you. He wants to be with you all day long. He wants to walk with you, live with you, work with you, be with you. And when you're hurting and when you've got something going on in your life, he wants to be the one you come to. When something great happens to you, who's the first person you want to talk to? When something bad happens to you, who's the first person you want to talk to? You want that to be God. Make it your goal to make him the first person you want to say, wow, thank you, I can't believe you worked that out. Oh, I was so stressed about that, why did I worry? If only I'd trusted you, I know you had it all under control the whole time. You had all of this going all this time. Wow, I just praise you, you're so wonderful. God wants that kind of relationship with us. Praise is a wonderful way to connect with God too. Sometimes the best way that we can start getting outside of ourselves in our little bubble and our little depression is when we start contemplating how big he is, how much he loves us, as you praise him for the incredible love he has for you. I don't mean just empty songs of praise, repeating the same seven words 11 times, you know, 7-11 songs. Um, I don't mean that kind of praise, but a praise that really opens your heart to God. Thank you for this that you're doing in my life. Thank you that even though I feel terrible, I know that you are at work in my heart, and that's a great thing to know. I am secure in you, not because I feel it, but because you've told me so, and I believe the word of God instead of what I feel. These are the things that you can do, just like taking that sharp two-edged sword and piercing the ground when you're wanting to cultivate your ground so that the seed can grow and bear much fruit. Put some force behind the promises. Meditate on them. Think about what God wants to say to me personally through what he's, what he's said right here in his word. So our sinful responses often block us out of understanding the character of God. That Ziploc bag around your heart is a misrepresentation of the character of God. And you're never going to get to the point where you totally understand God and now you have no more misrepresentations, no more baggage. God is going to keep on helping you grow infinitely throughout all of eternity. That's the glorious process of redemption. Well, I think that's a pretty fair summary of what we've talked about thus far. Now, I'm going to uh, read some of the, the questions I have here. 
I don't know if you want me to read the whole question. Some of you might not want me to read everything, so, but I don't see anything written on here. Okay, one of them is a confidential one. I can answer some of the questions that you have. <coughs> Let's see here. My sister was molested by our father for seven years. She has never really felt loved by either parent. Her and my mother have never had a good relationship. I believe she's gotten the message that she is bad, worthless, and unlovable. She used to try desperately to do everything right to have my mother's acceptance and approval, but never got it. She has been hopeful and strong and has been seeking to be loved. She has found rejection at every hand from home, church, and friends. She's had spiritual interest and insight. It's like she knows God is the answer, but somehow it hasn't worked. She tried for a while, reading her Bible, praying, going to church. It was going well, but she was very lonely, unconnected to good Christian friends. She ended up with another boyfriend. She was homeless and suicidal at one time. She's engaged, and I don't think she should get married. How can I help her? She does know that I love her. If she does know that you love her, that is the best key that you can have to getting to her heart because somebody needs to image God to her. Somebody needs to show her this is what God is like. He doesn't love you based on what you do right. The things we're talking about here are the things that you can share with your sister or your friend or whoever it is that may be going through something like this. This is what happens. You can see the process in here. This is a textbook case. Parents misrepresent the character of God and thereby close their child off from experiencing the love of God. As they are unable to experience the love of God in a deep and real way, they feel that God is toward them what their parents were. If you just make me happy, I'll love you. If you would only do everything right, I could accept you. Those kinds of things. So what you need to do is you can help your sister or your friend. Send them to audioverse.org. They can listen to these presentations and then maybe be able to experience what is it that God's trying to say? What is it that God's wanting to let me know about who he is, how he loves me? Now, I don't know how specifically things will apply to your sister or your friend in their situation, but what I do know is this, these principles from the word of God will work. They'll work as they're applied to the situation with your specific friend. The Lord will help you to know what to say. Share word pictures. This sponge inside of the plastic bag I find often helps people. And the word pictures in the word of God, the parable of the sower. Doesn't he take that, that, that seed and strew it out on the good ground? There's good seed, good ground, the good sower. What's wrong? The ground has been hardened by someone else's choices. But as you help them use the sword of the spirit to pierce that ground. There's nothing wrong with that ground. There's no reason those seeds can't grow there. It just takes a little work, a little work to understand the character of God so you can break through the crust. The water and the sword can do what no person can do just by sowing seed. People who go to church every week desperately hoping something will make them feel better, something will satisfy the thirst of their soul, but their ground of their heart is hard packed they sit there in church, they come out, they're still just as empty, just as thirsty. And they say, there's no use. It doesn't work. But it's because the word of God is not being applied in a specific way. You've got to point that sword at yourself, at the specific problems going on. Figure out what is it that's misrepresented of the character of God to me. And then, how can I apply this promise to what's going on in my particular life? Figure out a promise that applies to that and put some force behind it. Meditate on it. Cling to it. Say, God, I will believe you have loved me with an everlasting love. 
I will believe God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I will live that way, not because I feel it, but because I believe your word. As you put the force of your willpower behind that, and you pray that God will do what you are incapable of doing, the sword will pierce the hard ground. It will cut through that bag, and you will experience the love of God in a deep and satisfying way. This is how God wants to work in our hearts. This is how the Bible says that he will reach what's going on deep inside of us. The sword of the Spirit pierces to the very depths of who we are when we point it the right direction and we put some force behind it. And that's a wonderful process. As God lets you free from that, that oozing infection of sin, then he sets you free to be who he's always wanted you to be. And he'll keep on revealing things to you just when you think, wow, I'm really growing as a Christian. This is amazing. And then you see, what? I was doing that all the time. Oh, God, what was I thinking? It's great. It's this wonderful process of always dying that I may live again. All right. Um, some of the other questions here. How do we balance out this issue of feelings and venting? Oh, that's a great question. People have feelings and if you go to a typical psychologist, you may be told, you need to get it all out. Feel it. Scream it. Curse at your stepfather for all the things he did to you. That'll help you feel better. Let's compare that to scripture. What does the Bible say about just expressing things sinfully? If you've got sin in you, you've got to go express it. Let's suppose we take that to the logical conclusion. If I long to commit adultery, I should just go messing around because I've got to get it all out, right? Oh, help. We don't need to express our sinful desires in order to, you know, do something sinful. We don't do something sinful to get rid of something sinful. Sorry, I needed a little drink there. That's better. I had somebody tell me once, you know, I was, I was going through a lot in my, my walk with God and the things that I was working through with my parents. And then I got this boyfriend and he really helped me because he helped me to realize I needed to vent it. I needed to get that anger out. And so the process that it sounded like she had followed had been cursing and screaming and expressing that rage that she had within her. I said, well, did it help? Are you now no longer angry? Well, um, no, that, that wasn't the solution. You feel better for a little while, but this is like cutting open the wound, letting the infection out, and packing in some more dirt and germs. Is this going to help your wound? Exchanging sin for sin is just going to make your life more complicated. But you do need to experience those feelings. You need to examine what they are. But you examine your feelings in comparison to the Word of God. Don't just get swallowed by them. I feel depressed, so let me go curl up in a blanket in the corner of my life and wallow in it. But that is not going to help your depression. But what is going to help is doing a natural progression of you know, just like when you have a pendulum and you pull it over to one side, it's going to swing, it's going to swing to the other side. And then it's going to swing back. Sometimes you need a little bit of pressure and release. Spend some deep time with God agonizing over what's going on in your heart. But don't spend all day every day doing it. It'll emotionally overwhelm you. So spend time with God. Say, God, what is it that's going on in my life? What are the mines in my minefield? Let's dig out one together. And God will help you dig one out. But don't spend all day, every day, digging out mines from your minefield. You'll overwhelm yourself. 
So then go out and do something that's more relaxing. Spend time with God singing beautiful praise songs. Put on some beautiful music that's uplifting. Or go spend quality time with a good friend. Don't let all of your life be swallowed by introspection. And don't let all of your life be spent in escaping from the pain. Do the pendulum sometimes. A little time exploring what's going on. When you start getting overwhelmed, you start feeling like, I can't handle this anymore. I'm just crying all day. I'm always on the verge of tears. Get a little space from it. It's okay. Don't think that you've got to do that all the time. Maybe God is in an intense process where he wants to say, let's dig it out. Let's get it out from the bottom out. Then you can rest. Then we'll be okay. Just pray about it. Let God guide you through that process. You may have intense times and then times that you just lull, you know. When you go into surgery, you have some time to heal afterward. They don't decide, all right, well, now we'll do another surgery tomorrow. Boy, this is great. Your surgeries are getting all kinds of things out. How about another one tomorrow? We, we, don't, we don't tend to expect too much of our bodies like that when we go into surgery. You're doing emotional surgery? Give it some time. Don't expect God to do everything you want him to do now, today, this week. He's got so much more in store for you than you can imagine. Um, so the Bible says uh, in Proverbs 29, 11, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. That's right. A wise man will evaluate, is it godly for me to express these feelings? You know, Jesus expressed his anger. Anger is not an evil thing. Jesus was angry at sin, though. He didn't express his anger at, I hate you sinners, you guys are always, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't Christ-like anger, because that's not loving. Evaluate what you want to express based on the word of God. Is this the way Jesus would express something? You may have some hard things to say to your parents, and they may not be ready to hear them. Maybe you just need to write it out so that you understand the sins that were committed against you, and then you can evaluate your sinful responses. You're not in charge of trying to change your parents or anyone else who sinned against you. You're responsible to evaluate your own sinful responses to other sinful situations. Repent of those. Give those to God. And then you can relate in loving ways to those who have sinned against you without resentment toward them. When your life is poisoned with resentment, it's going to poison those relationships. And when you try to go talk to them about, you know, these things that you did to me as a child really hurt, you're not going to be able to express that in a loving way. You're going to want to hurt them because they hurt you. That's what resentment does to you. So express those feelings, but evaluate. Are these in line with scripture? Are these in line with the word of God? Sometimes that means that you say what you need to say because you need them to confront their sin issues. You know, I've had situations where I had to sit down with somebody and say, the way that you expressed that anger was very hurtful to me. And I need you to know that because I see that there's a pattern of you destroying your relationships with a lot of people. That concerns me. I want you to know that I love you whether or not you do what I want, whether or not you make me happy. But it's not going to help you to let you continue doing this. But don't express it for the purpose of controlling them. If you can just stop sinning against me, then I'll be free and then I won't sin anymore. They cannot control you. Your sinful response is your responsibility. Um, there's also counsel that um, we should lean solely on God. And that is a good point. You know, some people want to go to everybody they know and tell them about how bad their marriage is. That's not a good idea. But sometimes 
We also need to go to someone else to help us evaluate whether our responses are in line with the Word of God and what is a biblical response to someone else. When we're in the midst of a hurting, painful situation, we may not always be able to evaluate biblically. What is it that I should do here? What's the loving thing to do? Yes? Oh, yes. Yeah, so when you go from bad to worse, is there something in between worse and better where it's just kind of you're, you're not seeming to make any progress back or forth? I mean, you're out of bad, but... Right, you're out of bad, you're not in worse, but you're just kind of somewhere and not seeming to get anywhere, right. Sometimes, you know, God puts us in a, in a wilderness where we don't seem to be growing, we don't seem to be making any progress, and our job is not to achieve, but to keep pressing on. I would say in those times when you don't feel like anything is doing better, you're not growing, you're not changing, spend more time asking God, is there something you want to do that I'm not surrendering to? But realize sometimes he may just be letting you rest from the battle. He doesn't require you get up every day and battle all day long and then crash and then the next morning get up and battle all day long. Sometimes he gives you a little time to heal between surgeries. When you're still hurting, when you're still feeling like there's something going on here and I don't know what, but I'm still alienated from God, evaluate what misrepresentation of the character of God is affecting my life. Do I feel he's distant? Do I feel he's not right here beside me? Do I feel like he's, he's not caring about what's going on with me, even though I know better? In those times, you can always find scriptures to claim that apply to what's going on in my life right now. And you can always be growing, whether or not you're feeling like you're growing or not. You can always be growing in perseverance, in patience, in becoming who God wants you to be, whether you feel good or not. Okay, how do you balance your need of God and what you need from your husband? How much should I need versus, from my husband? Cuddling affection versus what I need from God. Are spouses even meant to meet each other's needs? You know, God has created us with a need for community. The law of God is love God first and love your neighbor as yourself. That tells me that we will feel incomplete unless we have quality relationships with other people. I think Jesus suffered because he hungered for deep quality relationships with other people, but other people didn't understand his mission. He longed for the disciples to be with him in his suffering in Gethsemane, to feel with him, to comfort him. That wasn't anything sinful. So it's healthy and normal for us to long for an intimate relationship with someone, even someone of the opposite sex. Um, when Christ is on the throne of my heart, when he is the center of my identity, then I will still struggle sometimes in my relationship with my husband because humans have difficulties communicating sometimes. I may misunderstand him, he may misunderstand me. We have different needs and we may not have communicated them effectively to each other. Not my husband, of course, but in a hypothetical situation, if I were married to an imperfect person. <laughs> there he sits in the back smiling at me. <laughs> um, in, in those situations, sometimes God is calling me to depend more heavily on him. A codependent relationship is where someone else or something else is on the throne of my heart. And codependency is just another word for idolatry. When 
my husband doesn't express love for me or in some way he doesn't make me feel loved, do I then crash emotionally? That shows me I need to come into balance in my relationship with God. Do I feel great if only my husband feels like I'm, I'm wonderful? Even if I know I'm not doing well in my walk with God, then I'm rising and falling with the tide. So my relationship with my husband is going to be crucial. He may be able to hold me back from some happiness if he doesn't treat me the way that I would like him to treat me. But he can't hold me back from holiness because that's a personal choice. I can choose to respond in a Christ-like way to anything he does. So he may hurt me. Pain is not the, the enemy. Sin is the enemy. And in every one of our situations, we have to expect sin is what I need to fight against. How do I keep from being codependent while still having a give-and-take healthy relationship? By, by drinking deeply from the fountain of living water. When you're spending quality time with God and he's satisfying the thirst in your heart, you will no longer demand that your husband or wife satisfy the thirst in your heart. If you find yourself saying, if only you would do this, then I would be happy, then realize your goal is happiness, and your spouse is going to be the one that stands between you and happiness. Therefore, you're going to start trying to grab them and drag them around, control them, manipulate them, make them do what you want so you can be happy. If your goal is holiness, they can't stand between you and holiness. Only Satan can stand between you and holiness. Only sin. And thankfully, God is able to remove Satan and sin so that you can still achieve holiness in your relationship with God. What should I expect from my spouse? How much is he responsible for giving me versus how much I need to receive from God? Another excellent question. I would say basically God has created families for community. Our parents don't perfectly image God to us and neither do our spouses. But God calls us into families not in order for us to become happy but for us to grow more fully into his image. In a relationship with a spouse, you'll confront self in all kinds of ways you never did before. If you haven't been married yet, believe me, you'll find out. Marriage will show you all kinds of ways you didn't know you were selfish. And therefore, it calls you up higher in new ways you are called to image God. So your goal needs to be holiness, not happiness. When you start getting irritated or upset with your spouse, evaluate. Why am I upset at them? Is it because there's something in me that God wants to change? Probably so. And then, as you let God change you, that's the best way to make your family a reflection of heaven, a reflection of relationship with God. That's what God wants for your family, that your family will image God. So in your relationship with your spouse, seek to image God. Seek to be like him in the way you love each other, and you'll be on the right track. Let's see. I'm... This one doesn't say confidential on it, so I'll go ahead and read it. I guess we don't have a whole lot of time, so let me kind of summarize. Someone who was sexually abused by their father wants to be able to witness to their father and wants to understand, you know, have they, have they worked through things well? Have they really been able to to do this and they wrote to him and told him that he had hurt them and that it was wrong that, that seemed like the Lord really worked in this letter that they wrote and he apologized and has lost his belief in the Bible though due to his uh, situation probably I don't want to give up hope for his salvation my mother really doesn't want me to communicate with him any advice alright well this is a specific situation um, but I can give you some general principles, and you can come and talk with me later if you'd like. I think this sounds like a very healthy thing to do, to write a letter 
telling him that he hurt you and it was wrong. When someone has hurt you and they have done you wrong, it's generally a great idea to write them a letter and explain it to them. Now, if this is a situation where, you know, you heard that they said something bad about you to someone else at school and it hurt your feelings, it's probably better to talk with them and find out what actually happened rather than just assuming you did something terribly hurtful to me and this is what you've done to me. But in a situation like this, it's very plain, this person has hurt you terribly. How can you image God to this person? How can you show them what God is like? You can show them, I still love you and you hurt me very much. This is a way of helping them confront their sin. Can you see how the principles of the Bible always apply to specific situations? God wants you to show this person what he is like. Yes, God still loves them, but sin is a horrible thing and sinners need to know it. If a person has done something cruel to you, you may need to write a letter to them to let them know. Make sure that letter is written in love, not in rage, saying, I'm going to hurt you as much as you hurt me. Sometimes you may need to write that letter and not even send it. My grandfather died and never was confronted about his sins. That doesn't mean that he never suffered any consequences. I'm sure that he was miserable and terrified so much of the time, wondering if he was going to get caught raping me, molesting me, all the horrible things that he was doing to me. But... You know, he didn't get a consequence of someone confronting him and sending him to prison. There's a part of me that says, well, maybe that would have been good for him. Maybe he would have been confronted with the horror of his sin. He might have repented. I don't think he repented before he died. I don't have any evidence of it. And that's really sad. When you confront someone who has sinned against you, you give them an opportunity to see the depths of their sinfulness so that they may feel a need for a savior. But give them hope, too. Tell them... God still loves you. Even if you can't continue in a relationship with a person because of the way that they have hurt you, you can still tell them God still loves you, and if you will surrender your life to him when we get to heaven, where everything is perfect, we'll be able to be friends at that point. I can't tell you what in each specific situation, but this sounds to me to be a very healthy step, writing a letter, telling him this. And sometimes you can tell whether it's the right thing to do because it brings a lasting sense of healing, a sense of this was the right thing, it was healthy, I feel freer now. That isn't something that you get from cursing and screaming at somebody. You may feel a little bit of relief, you've let off some pressure, but it's going to build again. This is how people get addicted to going to psychiatrists. They go every week and vent and let off all their pressure, but they're doing it in a sinful way. The next week they're going to go back and do the same thing again because they, they aren't getting healing, they're just getting pressure release. And it's ultimately a sinful process. All right, now the questions are coming in. Thank you. We have a few more minutes here. Let's see. Um, here's someone was abused by a Seventh-day Adventist pastor, sexually abused. You know, I, I know everyone who feels sexually abused feels alone. That's certainly how I felt. We all feel this incredible shame and a sense of, I can't possibly go out and let people know, you know, I'm so dirty, I'm so not like other people. But the reality is a tremendous number of people are sexually abused. I believe half of girls are sexually abused and probably a third or a fourth of guys. It's, it's a terrible plague in our society and it's not going to get any better. So if you have been sexually abused, know that God wants to use you as an instrument of healing to other people who won't listen if somebody says, well, I was never sexually abused, but I'll pray for you. Let's sing a song. I'll have a prayer right now with you. Lord, please help me to feel better. Thank you so much. Amen. You know, when you know the depth of that pain, you can minister to other people. It's as if 
I remember feeling like it was as if I was in this dark maze underground. I could never get out. But when I finally surrendered my life to God in a process, he guided me out of that dark maze and brought me out into the light. And then he said, go back, get others, bring them out too. When you've been there, when you've been lost in it, you can be used by God to be a channel of light to others, to bring them out of the maze. He'll help you explore even areas that you've never been yourself personally because God wants to help bring those people out. Sexual abuse is something that is a plague of our society, but it can create in people a hunger for God that, that makes them say, I cannot have a shallow relationship with God. I will have a deep relationship with him or nothing. Only those who will persevere to make it to the light get out of some of these dark places. But you can be a missionary in helping other people. This person says, I've gotten over the pain of being sexually abused. I have prayed for the forgiveness of this person, but I do not talk to them, even though I have no hatred for them. Do you think I need to talk to him about what he did, or should I just stay away? In my heart I have forgiven him and do not have hate for him. What do you think he needs? Has he ever been confronted about his sin? You know, if he's an Adventist pastor, he's under conviction, but he may not have hope that God can deliver him. Or maybe he's just calloused. He's made himself believe that it's okay. It's not that bad, you know. Ellen White wrote very strongly about sexual abuse and about she told, she told a man who had apparently sexually abused a child, you have no idea of the damage that you have done. And sometimes a person needs to have a letter written to them like that to make them, to force them confront the evil, the horrible things that they have caused another person to go through. I would say if that person has not expressed repentance in a deep, heartfelt way, if they have not shown that they're really sorry, they need to be confronted about that. In fact, in a leadership position, when a person is willing to hold on to such profound immorality, they need to be removed from their position. So this person needs to be confronted biblically, and they need it very seriously. You may need to write them a letter, but you need to let them know, what you have done is very serious. I need you to show me that you are very sorry for what you have done. And it may even be appropriate for you to go to their superiors. Not knowing the specifics of the situation, it's difficult for me to know, is this person still in ministry? Are they still in the church? You know, all those kinds of things. But if they're still in ministry, if they're still being in a leadership position, they need to be confronted, and they need to be confronted soon, because a person in that kind of position who has not showed repentance is not going to stop. There are going to be other victims, and you can save the life of someone else who may go through the same thing that you went through. It's very serious to allow a person who has been a sexual abuser not to face any consequences and to be able to just go on scot-free. Not only do they not face the sinfulness of their sin and have hope of repentance because they can finally go, wow, I am a bad sinner. Maybe I do need God. But they also will go on spreading the evil, destroying other lives. So I would say definitely confront that situation. I know someone who has been struggling with a sexual addiction since she was young. This person has never been sexually molested. What could be the problem? How can this be overcome? She has prayed and gained temporary victory, but it always seems to come back. My husband is going to be talking about addictions in the next uh, session, which should be starting in 10 minutes. I know we're running over a little bit late. Um, no, briefly, what drives a sexual addiction is a combination usually of natural, you know, God has created us to be sexual beings, and we long for sexual satisfaction. And once a person has tasted that, it can become a physical drive that, that makes them long for it. 
That's not evil. But the other thing that usually drives a sexual addiction is that we long for intimacy. We long for somebody to make us feel good. Sex is meant to be shared. Anytime it's not shared, it's hollow. It brings guilt. We sense this is a shameful thing. We wouldn't want everybody to know that this is what we do. Therefore, we hide. God doesn't want sex to be something shameful. Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. And that's what God wants for every one of us to have in our sex experience. So when a person is addicted to sexual things, pornography, masturbation, whatever it is, they can get to the root issue and allow the, the love of God to, per, to penetrate into the deep areas of their hearts. It can help them to deal with the, the urge, the craving, and bring it down to something manageable that they can overcome. It's not that I feel that masturbation is the worst sin in the world. I know many people, they feel so cut off from God, but the real problem, and why I believe Ellen White wrote so strongly against masturbation, was because it's something that makes people feel profoundly cut off from God. Their guilty feelings make them feel unloved and unlovable, and therefore they feel that they cannot have hope in their walk with God. That sex is meant to be something shared, it's meant to be something that unites people, and when it's not that, it's warping what God wanted us to have, and it's it's very damaging and unsatisfying. All right, last couple of questions here. Um, I think some of these are similar. Um, maybe some of it will be something that um, my husband will be dealing with in the second session. I think some people, uh, some people deal with this. Um, pornography and masturbation issues. I think what, what you need to realize on those things is what I was sharing about yesterday with a Bible worker who was addicted to porn and masturbation, often it's the sense of shame that drives us back to the sin because we feel dirty, we feel bad, we don't feel that we can be loved and accepted by God, therefore we flee back to the things that feel natural. I am bad, I am dirty, I am a sex addict, and these are the things that make me feel comfortable as who I am. Even though we hate it, it's, it's where we're used to being. Like a person who has grown up being beaten by their father and they marry somebody who will beat them too. It's familiar. It's horrible, but it's familiar. Mm, okay, we'll do this last one and then if you had a question and you didn't get it answered, you can come up and talk with me afterward. If you both love another so much and also have a deep love for God, how can you really tell if this person is or is not an idol in your life or you in their life? Um, does your happiness rise or fall on this person? And are you, are you placing them in the place of God in your life? This is something, you know, it's not like it's always just black and white. It's more like a continuum sometimes. Sometimes I'm starting to get idolatrous, but I know it's not really the right thing. I need to come back to God, and we start progressing toward God again, and we start getting drawn back. You know, so I can't say, well, this is, this is how you know. There's not a test hard and fast like that. But in general, I'd say, go back to you know, the old test. Who has the heart? With whom are the thoughts? Of whom do you love to converse? Who has your warmest affections and your best energies? If we are Christ's, our hearts will be his, our thoughts will be his, and our sweetest thoughts will be of him. 
if, you're, if your life is wrapped around another person, you will tend to do the God says, but I feel thing and come out on the I feel. Yeah, I know we probably shouldn't go out to that movie, but you know, it's, it's not that bad. Come on, what's wrong with it? The whole what's wrong with it mentality. When you have that what's wrong with it mentality, you know you're treading on dangerous ground. You're saying, is God going to hold me back from good things, from happiness? That's a dangerous mentality. Well, we can't cover the other questions now, but if you have something that you turned in or if you turned in something that said confidential, come up here afterward. I can go outside and talk with you for a little while. And uh, I've enjoyed being able to talk with you. My husband will be starting in about uh, 10 minutes, I would guess. We'll give you a 10-minute break. And then he'll be starting talking about addictions and overcoming them by God's grace. Let's, let's finish with prayer. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your love for us. Help us to experience it in new ways this new year. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.